Chapter 19, Part 2 of The Rainbow Trail by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Grand Canyon of the Colorado, Part 2. The boat cleared the sand, lazily wheeled in the eddying water, and suddenly seemed caught by some powerful gliding force. When it swept out beyond the jutting wall, Shefford saw a quarter of a mile of sliding water that appeared to end abruptly. Beyond lengthened out the gigantic gap between the black and frowning cliffs. Wow, ejaculated Joe, drops out of sight there, but that one ain't much. I can tell by the roar. When you see my hair stand up straight, then watch out. Lassiter, you look after the women. Shefford, you stand ready to bail out with a shovel, for we'll sure ship water. Naste Bega, you help me here with the oar. The roar became a heavy, continuous rumble. The current quickened. Little streaks and ridges seemed to race along the boat. Strange gurglings rose from under the bow. Shefford stood on tiptoe to see the break in the river below. Swiftly it came into sight. A wonderful, long, smooth, red slant of water, a swelling mound, a huge black curling wave, another and another, a sea of frothy, uplifting crests, leaping and tumbling and diminishing down to the narrowing apex of the rapid. It was a frightful sight, yet it thrilled Shefford. Joe worked the steering oar back and forth and headed the boat straight for the middle of the incline. The boat reached the round rim, gracefully dipped with a heavy sop, and went shooting down. The wind blew wet in Shefford's face. He stood erect, thrilling, fascinated, frightened. Then he seemed to feel himself lifted. The curling wave leaped at the boat. There was a shock that laid him flat, and when he rose to his knees, all about him was roar and spray and leaping muddy waves. Shock after shock jarred the boat. Splashes of water stung his face, and then the jar and the motion, the confusion and roar gradually lessened until presently Shefford rose to see smooth water ahead and the long, trembling rapid behind. "'Get busy, bailer!' yelled Joe. "'Pretty soon you'll be glad you have to bail, so you can't see.' There were several inches of water in the bottom of the boat, and Shefford learned for the first time the expediency of a shovel in the art of bailing. The tarpaulin worked powerful good, went on Joe, and it saves the women. Now, if it just don't bust on a big wave, the one back there was little. When Shefford had scooped out all the water, he went forward to see how Fay and Jane and Lassiter had fared. The women were pale, but composed. They had covered their heads. But the dreadful roar, exclaimed Fay. Lassiter looked shaken for once. Sure I'd rather take a chance meeting them Mormons on the way out, he said. Shefford spoke with an encouraging assurance which he did not himself feel. Almost at the moment he marked the silence that had fallen into the canyon. Then it broke to a low, dull, strange roar. Ah, hear that? The Mormon shook his shaggy head. Reckon we're in Cataract Canyon. We'll be standing on end from now on. Hang on to her, boys. Danger of this unusual kind had brought out 
a peculiar levity in the somber Mormon, a kind of wild, gay excitement. His eyes rolled as he watched the river ahead, and he puffed out his cheek with his tongue. The rugged, overhanging walls of the canyon grew sinister in Shefford's sight. They were jaws, and the river that made him shudder to look down into it. The little whirling pits were eyes peering into his, and they raced on with the boat, disappeared, and came again, always with the little hollow gurgles. The craft drifted swiftly, and the roar increased. Another rapid seemed to move up into view. It came at a bend in the canyon. When the breeze struck Shefford's cheek, he did not this time experience exhilaration. The current accelerated its sliding motion and bore the flatboat straight for the middle of the curve. Shefford saw the bend, a long, dark, narrow, gloomy canyon, and a stretch of contending waters. Then, crouching low, he waited for the dip, the race, the shock. They came, the last, stopping the boat, throwing it aloft, letting it drop, and crests of angry waves curled over the side. Shefford, kneeling, felt the water slap around him, and in his ears was a deafening roar. There were endless moments of strife and hell and flying darkness of spray all about him, and under him the rocking boat. When they lessened, ceased in violence, he stood ankle-deep in water, and then, madly, he began to bail. Another roar deadened his ears, but he did not look up from his toil, and when he had to get down to avoid the pitch, he closed his eyes. The rapid passed, and with more water to bail, he resumed his share in the manning of the crude craft. It was more than his share, a tremendous responsibility to which he bent with all his might. He heard Joe yell, and again and again. He heard the increasing roars of one after another, till they seemed one continuous bellow. He felt the shock, the pitch, the beating waves, and then the lessening power of sound and current. That set him to his task. Always, in these long intervals of toil, he seemed to see, without looking up, the growing proportions of the canyon. And the river had become a living, terrible thing. The intervals of his tireless effort, when he scooped the water overboard, were fleeting, and the rides through rapid after rapid were endless periods of waiting terror. His spirit and his hope were overwhelmed by the rush and roar and fury. Then, as he worked, there came a change, a rest to the deafened ears, a stretch of river that seemed quiet after chaos. And here, for the first time, he bailed the boat clear of water. Jane and Fay were huddled in a corner, with the flapping tarpaulin now half fallen over them. They were wet and muddy. Lassiter crouched like a man dazed by a bad dream, and his white hair hung, stained and bedraggled, over his face. The Indian and the Mormon, grim, hard, worn, stood silent at the oar. The afternoon was far advanced, and the sun had already descended below the western ramparts. A cool breeze blew up the canyon, laden with a sound that was the same, yet not the same, as those low, dull roars which Shefford dreaded more and more. Joe Lake turned his ear to the breeze. A strong puff brought a heavy, quivering rumble. This time 
He did not vent his gay and wild defiance to the river. He bent lower, listened. Then, as the rumble became a strange, deep, reverberating roll, as if the monstrous river were rolling huge stones down a subterranean canyon, Shefford saw with dilating eyes that the Mormon's hair was rising stiff upon his head. "'Hear that?' said Joe, turning an ashen face to Shefford. "'We'll drop off the earth now. Hang on to the girl, so if we go, you can go together. And, pard, if you've a god, pray.' Nas Te Bega faced the bend from whence the rumble came, and he was the same dark, inscrutable, impassive Indian as of old. What was death to him? Shefford felt the strong, rushing love of life surge in him, and it was not for himself, he thought, but for Fay and the happiness she merited. He went to her, patted the covered head, and tried with words choking in his throat to give hope. And he leaned with hands gripping the gunwale, with eyes wide open, ready for the unknown. The river made a quick turn, and from round the bend rumbled a terrible uproar. The current racing that way was divided or uncertain, and it gave strange motion to the boat. Joe and Naste Bega shoved desperately upon the oar, all to no purpose. The currents had their will. The bow of the boat took the place of the stern, then swift at the head of a curved incline, it shot beyond the bulging wall. And Shefford saw an awful place before them. The canyon had narrowed to half its width and turned almost at right angles. The huge clamor of appalling sound came from under the cliff where the swollen river had to pass and where there was not space. The rapid rushed with gigantic swells right upon the wall, boomed against it, climbed and spread and fell away to recede and gather new impetus to leap madly on down the canyon. Shefford went to his knees, clasped Fay and Jane, too. But facing this appalling thing, he had to look. Courage and despair came to him at the last. This must be the end. With long, buoyant swing, the boat sailed down, shot over the first waves, was caught, and lifted upon the great swell, and impelled straight toward the cliff. Huge whirlpools raced alongside, and from them came a horrible engulfing roar. Monstrous bulges rose on the other side. All the stupendous power of that mighty river of downward rushing silt swung the boat aloft, up and up, as the swell climbed the wall. Shefford, with transfixed eyes and harrowed soul, watched the wet black wall. It loomed down upon him. The stern of the boat went high. Then, when the crash that meant doom seemed imminent, the swell spread and fell back from the wall, and the boat never struck at all. By some miraculous chance, it had been favored by a strange and momentary receding of the huge spent swell. Then it slid back and caught and whirled by the current into a red, frothy, upflung rapids below. Shefford bowed his head over Fay and saw no more, nor felt nor heard. What seemed a long time after that, the broken voice of the Mormon recalled him to his labors. The boat was half full of water. Nas Bega scooped out great sheets of it with his hands. 
Shefford sprang to aid him, found the shovel, and plunged into the task. Slowly but surely they emptied the boat, and then Shefford saw that twilight had fallen. Joe was working the craft toward a narrow bank of sand, to which presently they came, and the Indian sprang out to moor to a rock. The fugitives went ashore, and, weary and silent and drenched, they dropped in the warm sand. But Shefford could not sleep. The river kept him awake. In the distance it rumbled, low, deep, reverberating, and near at hand it was a thing of mutable mood. It moaned, whined, mocked, and laughed. It had the soul of a devil. It was a river that had cut its way to the bowels of the earth, and its nature was destructive. It harbored no life. Fighting its way through those dead walls, cutting and tearing and wearing, its heavy burden of silt was death, destruction, and decay. A silent river, a murmuring, strange, fierce, terrible, thundering river of the desert. Even in the dark it seemed to wear the hue of blood. All night long Shefford heard it, and toward the dark hours before dawn, when a restless, broken sleep came to him, his dreams were dreams of a river of sounds. All the beautiful sounds he knew and loved he heard, the sigh of the wind in the pines, the mourn of the wolf, the cry of the laughing gull, the murmur of running brooks, the song of a child, the whisper of a woman. And there was the boom of the surf, the roar of the north wind in the forest, the roll of thunder. And there were the sounds, not of earth, a river of the universe rolling the planets, engulfing the stars, pouring the sea of blue into infinite space. Night with its fitful dreams passed. Dawn lifted the ebony gloom out of the canyon, and sunlight far up on the ramparts renewed Shefford's spirit. He rose and awoke the others. Fay's wistful smile still held its faith. They ate of the gritty, water-soaked food. Then they embarked. The current carried them swiftly down and out of hearing of the last rapid. The character of the river and the canyon changed. The current lessened to a slow, smooth, silent, eddying flow. The walls grew straight, sheer, gloomy, and vast. Shefford noted these features, but he was listening so hard for the roar of the next rapid that he scarcely appreciated them. All the fugitives were listening, every bend in the canyon, and now, the turns were numerous, might hold a rapid. Shefford strained his ears. He imagined the low, dull, strange rumble. He had it in his ears, yet there was the growing sensation of silence. "'Sure this is a dead place,' muttered Lassiter. "'She's only slowed up for a bigger plunge,' replied Joe. "'Listen, hear that?' But there was no true sound. Joe only imagined what he expected and hated and dreaded to hear. Mile after mile they drifted through the silent gloom between those vast and magnificent walls. After the speed, the turmoil, the whirling, shrieking, thundering, the never-ceasing sound and change and motion of the rapids above, the slow, quiet drifting, this utter, absolute silence, these eddying stretches of still water below, worked strangely upon Shefford's mind, and he feared he was going mad. There was no change to the silence, no help for the slow drift, 
no lessening of the strain. And the hours of the day passed as moments. The sun crossed the blue gap above. The golden lights hung upon the upper walls. The gloom returned, and still there was only dead, vast, insupportable silence. There came bends where the current quickened, ripples widened, long lanes of little waves roughened the surface, but they made no sound. And then the fugitives turned through a V-shaped vent in the canyon. The ponderous walls sheered away from the river. There was a space and sunshine, and far beyond this league-wide open rose vermilion-colored cliffs. A mile below the river disappeared in a dark, box-like passage from which came a rumble that made Shefford's flesh creep. The Mormon flung high his arms and let out that stentorian yell that had rolled down to the fugitives as they waited at the mouth of Nanesoshi Boko, but now it had a wilder, more exultant note. Strange how he shifted his gaze to Fay Larkin. "'Girl, get up and look,' he called. "'The fairy, the fairy!' Then he bent his brawning back over the steering oar, and the clumsy craft slowly turned toward the left-hand shore, where a long, low bank of green willows and cottonwoods gave welcome relief to the eye. Upon the opposite side of the river, Shefford saw a boat, similar to the one he was in, moored to the bank. "'Sure if I ain't losing my eyes, I see an Indian with a red blanket,' said Lassiter. "'Yes, Lassiter,' cried Shefford. "'Look, Fay, look, Jane. See, Indians!' Hogan's Mustangs, there above the green bank. The boat glided slowly shoreward, and the deep, hungry, terrible rumble of the remorseless river became something no more to dread. End of chapter 19, part 2